Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is the Gospel of God by Pastor Sean Wood. Today we we begin a series for the Book of Romans. If we finish the Book of Romans by this time next year, I will be surprised. (laughs) The Book of Romans is uh, an immensely, profoundly, gloriously in-depth letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome and as I was preparing for this morning's message and as I was looking at some of the topics we're going to be looking at even in the near distant future I'm thinking to myself Lord I almost need to ask people to sign a disclaimer as they're coming in (laughs) but then I thought it doesn't matter because I never wrote this stuff so I don't need you to sign a disclaimer but uh, the book of Romans, uh, this is a new term I've begun to like, but the book of Romans does something to the heart of mankind. It rips the band-aid right off. Uh, who here would like to delve on into the deep things of God? I think most Christians would, but the common misconception is that we, we start with the gospel and then we go on into the deep things of God, that the, the gospel's for non-believers, that the, that the gospel is for new Christians, but then we just leave all that stuff behind and we go on into the deep things of God. I want to tell you this morning, the gospel is the deep thing of God. And the Romans, uh, the letter to the Romans from chapter 1 to chapter 16 is the message of the gospel. And I wanted you to sign a disclaimer because everybody sitting in this room goes, I know what the gospel is, Pastor. I, I know what the gospel is. We were taught this in Sunday school. I know the gospel and I am willing to put a wager on that we have not all grasped the full revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it's so important that Paul, in having an argument with Peter, I find this amazing, Galatians 3, Paul rebukes Peter. He says, I opposed him to his face. Why? Because Peter was being a hypocrite. Peter was acting one way around the Gentiles when the Jews were there. And then when the Jews would come, he'd act in a different way. And you know what? Paul could have come to Peter and said, you know what? You're being a hypocrite. He could have pulled the Old Testament apart and said, you're being racist, but he doesn't. Paul comes to Peter and says, your behaviour is outside the guidelines of the gospel. It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't compute. It doesn't fall into line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't treat people differently now, Peter. And I believe that the gospel, the gospel is the most glorious message in the universe, but we, we are in danger of losing it. If, if there is any gospel message you hear that in any way, shape or form does not incorporate Jesus, I don't know what gospel you're listening to. If you're listening to a gospel that talks about how you can be healthy, wealthy and wise, wrong gospel. If you were sold a gospel that's all about your efforts and what you have to do to be in right standing with God, wrong gospel. (laughs) And we're going to look at that next week. Who here... Notice that we just passed Halloween. I, I, I actually look forward to Halloween. 
And most people in this room are going to say, okay, sack the pastor. He's gone mad. Give the man four weeks off and look what he, look what he does. But I, I look forward to Halloween because, uh, not because of Halloween, but because on October the 31st, in the year of 1517, a German monk posted 95 objections on the, on the doors of the Catholic Church. The man's name was Martin Luther. We're going to hear a lot about Martin Luther. But the gospel message, he thought he was right. Martin Luther is the man. We've all heard of Martin Luther King Jr., the guy that was assassinated. He renamed himself after a trip to Germany and he learnt the story of Martin Luther. He changed his name. So inspired by the story of Martin Luther. I'm reading a biography of Martin Luther that's like that thick. What a man. But here's a man... That, that thought righteousness, there's a big word that you're going to find in, in the book of Romans. He thought that righteousness, he thought that a, a relationship with God was all about what he could do. This is a man that spent six hours in a confessional and walked out, <laughs> drove the, everybody he was confessing to, drove his elders mad. Because he said, you know what? He said, by the time I finish confessing all the sin that I can think of, I've just thought of so much more that I missed. He's a man that sat on the rim of the black hole of the human heart and realised, you know what? That black hole doesn't end. As one American preacher candidly put it, he said, if, if sin was blue, we'd all be Smurfs. <laughs> it so permeated every part of our nature. But the gospel, when Martin Luther grabbed the authentic message of the gospel and revolutionised his life, he was, a man that, uh, he was a man that went from, he was asked, how much do you love God, Martin? He said, love God. He said, I loathe him. He said, how dare he place upon us the burden of being in right standing with God? How dare he place the burden of us excommunicating our sins until he realised <laughs> we don't have to do it at all? He went from a man that was so depressed, his wife used to hide the knives, to a man that was so full of joy, the threat of being burnt at the stake couldn't keep the joy off his face. He got it. He got it. And the one verse, one of the verses that revolutionised his life, we look at next week in Romans chapter 1. But I want to I preface what we're talking about this morning. And Paul writes to a church in Rome. He's not writing to non-believers. He's not writing to Christians that were born only a matter of weeks ago. In fact, this church has been established for such a length of time that the, uh, the, the proclamation of their faith has reached everybody. Everybody's talking about the faith of the Roman church. He is not writing to new Christians, but he writes the beautiful message of the gospel. As we work our way through the book of Romans, we're going we're to explore what some of the big words like righteousness, justification, what does that actually mean? What does it mean that I'm justified by faith? We're going to find all of that out. We're going to touch on that next week. But what about words like, here's a really big word today that nobody wants to hear. It's called sin. How dare you preach on sin, pastor? We don't, we don't talk about that anymore. But Paul starts right there. He works his way through how we become in a relationship with God. And by the time we get to Romans chapter 8, we get a whole lot of big words in Romans chapter 8. Words like predestination. Words like calling. That's an enormous word. 
words like foreknowledge. And so many people read Romans 8 and forget about the first seven chapters. And you can't. Some beautiful truths. And then after Paul has finished telling us exactly how glorious the gospel message is, he starts in Romans chapter 12. He brings it right into our own home. He puts it in our lap and says, this is how it applies in your life. If you want to know what the deep thing of God is, the deep things of God are the gospel. Let me tell you a little bit of a story. Let me, let me tell you the greatest story that was ever written. It's the story that we hold in our hands right here. You might have it on your devices, but it's the story of mankind and God. It's the story of the Bible. You can't interpret any part of Scripture without interpreting it in light of the one grand story. And let, let us start in paradise. Let me paraphrase for you this wonderful, beautiful message. Let us start in paradise where man and God are so closely in relationship. We forget that God's a personality. God can be cultivated, says A.W. Tozer, just like any other personality. We have two personalities in such beautiful union that it's that it's indescribable, something that man has, has never known since. But then, of course, tragedy hits because choice comes into our universe. And, and of course, we know what happens. Adam and Eva are in the garden, and when they're given free will, they decide we're going to live life our way. Nothing's changed in many thousands of years. We're going to live life our way. We're going to make our choices. So we're going to eat the fruit that we want to eat. And of course, sin enters and man falls out of that enormously profound relationship. And then God, in all of his glorious love and wonder, you know what? God should have left us right there. God should have said, you know what? You've made your choice. You can have the consequences, but God doesn't leave us there. That's what I love about this awesome and wonderful God that we serve. You know, every other religion on the planet paints a picture of man striving after God, but in, the, in Jesus and in Christianity, we see God striving after man. Completely flips the coin. But this relationship has been destroyed, but God immediately puts his plan in action. And we can see the plan of God beginning in the old covenant. We see shadows of it in the sacrifices. We see, we see symbolic allusions to the person of Christ. It, we will see that it has been heralded in scripture. There was a time coming when, when all of that would be removed. Man existed in a relationship with God, but there were veils. We're going to look at those in a moment. There were veils and there was, there was separation. But oh, there's good news, friends. I've got some good news for everybody in this room today. There's no more veils because of the person of Jesus Christ. As Billy Graham said, I've read the end of the story and everything turns out all right. This wonderful, beautiful gospel, the entire message is about the restoration of that union between man and God. The whole story of the Bible is the beautiful picture of this wonderful and glorious gospel. And man is now on a journey from, as it were, from, from the wiles of sin back to the place where we are in that presence of God. You see, there's a difference between the omnipresence of God and the Shekinah manifest presence of God. The difference is the omnipresence of God is God is everywhere. The manifest presence of God is you are so aware of it, you're lucky if you can get off the carpet. A.W. Tozer describes it as living under the smile of heaven. 
There is the journey of our hearts. There is the journey of our souls from that place of the wiles of sin and rebellion back into the loving arms and the presence of God. That's the gospel message. The gospel message is the restoration of that relationship. And it is best pictured, that journey is best pictured. It's going to be exposed as we work our way through the book of Romans, but it is best illustrated in the picture of the tabernacle in the Old Covenant. Bear with me for a moment. In the tabernacle of the Old Covenant, we begin in the outer court. And in the outer court, we have uh, the whole ethos is we move into the temple. And in the outer court, that's where the sacrifices were. That's where blood was sacrificed. That's where people washed and ceremoniously washed themselves in the outer court. And then from the outer court, we move to a place called the holy place beyond a veil where, where no natural light would enter. But the only light that was given in the holy place was off a golden candlestick. Beautiful picture of Jesus. Beautiful picture of Jesus. And there was the shoe bread, beautiful picture of the bread of life. And in the holy place, there was the, the altar of incense, which is symbolic of our unceasing prayer. And then in this tabernacle, in this temple, there was a place called the most holy place where one man went once a year with a rope tied around his waist because if he got anything wrong, he wasn't coming back. That's the most holy place where the mercy seat was and where the presence of God dwelt. A.W. Tozer says beautifully, he says, the flame of the presence was the beating heart of the Levitical order. And what he is saying is everything that happened inside of that tabernacle, everything that happened in the old covenant, everything that was all about worship and approaching God, it was all about the presence of God. It was all about that abiding, remaining presence. And I've got some enormously good news this morning because in the, under the Levitical order, there were veils that separated men from that holy place and that presence of God. But Jesus tore those veils from the top to the bottom. And the message of the gospel is the message of us coming back into that presence. And discipleship Call it whatever you like, but the journey of each person and my, my heart's desire, my vision and my prayer for us as a church is that everybody would move from the outer court towards the presence of God. There is a presence that sits and bids every single one of us to come. We should be living, we should be experiencing the presence of God in our lives today. So many people settle for the outer court. So many people are happy to exist in the outer court. So many people are happy to to exist on this side of the veil. We're the ones putting the veils up. The one thing that is stopping each and every one of us, we keep putting, we're going to look at a man that put veils up in a moment, but the veils that we keep putting are our fallen nature. So often in our lives, so often in our churches, we go through our Christian walk and the fallen nature inside us remains and is tolerated, unjudged, uncrucified and unchecked. The truth of the gospel is this, it will attack the fallen nature in your heart. Paul the Apostle writes a letter to Romans. 
And I believe it was a trumpet call. And there's a man that I have come to trust that most of his ministry happened in the 1950s. That's a man by the name of A.W. Tozer. And Aidan Wilson Tozer was born again at the age of 19 by a street preacher and went on no theological training, no seminary formal training, but he was given... He was given theological recognition and huge awards. He only wrote a handful of books from his own pen. But here's a man, I believe, that blasted a trumpet to the church in the 1950s and said, why is it that we are so dry? Why is it that we remain so thirsty? Why is it that we are so content to sit just outside the veil, shriveling up when the presence of God is available to each and every single one of us? Why is that the case when it does not have to be? My heart's desire is, as we work our way through the book of Romans, my heart's desire is that a trumpet would be blown. And before we go any further, I want to ask everybody here, will you take up the call? Will we as a church take up the call to move on in towards the presence of God? This book of Romans is written by a bloke by the name of Paul and I love the words of A.W. Tozer where he says, you know what, our churches are full of theologians, our churches are full of doctrinal teaching, which they need to be, by the way. He says, but we need more men, great challenge to leaders of the church, but he says we need more men that are prophets, that, that hear from God like Moses and come down and deliver the message of God. But what we see in Paul, we get the blessing of both. He was a man that was deeply, deeply educated. He was a man that would go on to say, in regards to the law, I was blameless. The Pharisees had more rules than you could teach in school, I reckon. These guys were so fanatical about their rules that plucking a hair on Sundays was considered to be work. You were not allowed to look in the mirror on Sundays. Work that one out. Come to church. Imagine if we did that today. <laughs> We'd need some grace, brothers and sisters. <laughs> but here's a man that was deeply, deeply versed in education, but also a man that heard the voice of God. We read in Galatians, we get a snippet of it in Galatians, that this man, once he is converted, he says, I did not receive this gospel from any man, but we know that he goes into the wilderness and spends three years, three years on his own as the message is downloaded to him and he brings it. Paul is a man that begins, as you read, I love reading Paul's words because when you're reading through his epistles, his early epistles are like our Lord and Saviour, our Lord the King. But then by the time we get to the end of his epistles, it's like my Lord and Saviour, my Saviour Jesus. There has been an enormous softening in Paul. Paul goes on his first missionary trip and a guy by the name of John Mark is, is with him and with Barnabas. And John Mark gets halfway through the trip and says, this is pretty intense. I'm out of here. You might know John Mark. He wrote the Gospel of Mark. 
But then they go on their second trip and Barnabas says, hey, Paul, what about, what about John Mark? And Paul says, I won't have anything to do with him again. He bailed before and I don't want anything to do with him. <laughs> of course, we get to First and Second Timothy and Paul says, uh, bring with you such and such, such and such and bring John Mark, who is useful to me in the ministry. Jesus had done a work in the heart of Paul. And I say that to say that this work of the gospel in our hearts and in our lives never ends, friends. So many people think that the gospel message, what's the goal of the gospel message? Get to heaven. So many people think Jesus came down to pass out free tickets to heaven. Jesus did not come down to pass out free tickets to heaven. That's a beautiful, glorious part of all of the gospel and and all of the beautiful salvation that Jesus came. But Jesus came to reunite man and God. He didn't come down to give you a new Mercedes. He didn't come down so that preachers could buy themselves a new $71 million jet. He didn't come down and promise you a life of luxury and comfort. But he has promised us that we can be reunited with God. What else do we want? What else could we possibly want? This Paul says, he says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. He says, and that word servant in the Greek is bond servant. The difference between a servant in the first century and a bond servant is a servant would, uh, would serve out of obligation. If you were a servant, you did so because that was your obligation. But uh, servants were kept for generally a period of seven years. Some were longer. And when the time was ended, you were given the opportunity quite often to stay on. And a bond servant is somebody that puts their hand up and says, you know what, I've come to so love my master and I'm treated so well now that I stay, not because I'm obligated, but I want to stay and I want to serve him. And I give all of my life over to the authority willingly of this master. And there was a ceremony that would be performed and you would have your ear pierced and it all put in and everybody knew you were a bond servant. Paul says, I'm a bond servant of Jesus Christ. He says, I do, what he's saying is, I don't do everything I do because I have to. I don't serve Jesus out of obligation. I serve Jesus because I love him and because I want to hand over my life to his authority. If you are a control freak here this morning, (laughs) welcome aboard. We're all control freaks and the, the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the gentle, gentle caressing of that control back into the hands of Christ. If you are a control freak, welcome, but be put on notice. Jesus will not leave you in control. Paul can testify to that. Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus called. We're going to look at the word calling more as we work our way through, but we need to, we need to just pause for a moment because Paul was called to be an apostle There's difference between calling and creating. In calling, God puts all the framework together and then places the person inside the office. When it comes to creation, man puts all the framework together and puts themselves inside the office and watch the walls tumble and fall. Paul says, Jesus has placed me here as an apostle. A servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. That word set apart in the Greek is actually the word Pharisee. 
And I'm going to go right out on a limb right now and um, possibly have to sign a letter of resignation afterwards. But, but I think the church needs more Pharisees. And many people say, well, that's exactly the people that Jesus was uh, arguing with all the time when he came, but we need more Pharisees. Why? Because when Pharisees first came about, it was in a time of exile. And a Pharisee was somebody that said, you know what, I'm going to devote the entirety of my life, I'm going to devote the entirety of my efforts to upholding the law. We're in exile, we're in Babylon, we're in danger of losing all of this teaching, but we are going to uphold it. And they were zealous. By the time Jesus comes, some five, six hundred years later, by the time Jesus comes, the Pharisees had taken it to such a degree that they had lost what they started out as. But what Paul says, and he should know, he was a Pharisee. In fact, he would say, I grew up at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most respected Pharisees of that time. And Paul says, I am a Pharisee for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel message has set me apart. This gospel message I devote my whole life to. This gospel message separates me and distinguishes me. And if the gospel message that you have heard or if the gospel that you have come to believe in does not distinguish you and does not set you apart, I need to question what gospel it is that you hold to. The gospel of Jesus Christ will set you apart. The gospel of Jesus Christ will distinguish you from everybody else in this world. The gospel of Jesus Christ was absolute foolishness to the wise people in the first century. Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. I've been called as an apostle. I've been set apart for the gospel of God. What is this gospel? We've just explained what the gospel is. Briefly. We're going to unpack it more as we work our way through the book of Romans, but it's the gospel of God. It's not the gospel of man. It's not the gospel of a madman. It's not the gospel of a myth or a legend. It's not science fiction. It's not Star Trek. It's not Star Wars. It's the gospel of God. It is the good news or the good tidings of God. Paul goes on and says, I've been set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. All the way through the Old Testament, we see that there is the the promise of this Messiah. There is a time that is coming when you would be free from sins. We hear hear promises in Jeremiah that says that there's a new covenant coming and I will write my laws on your hearts. We read in Ezekiel that we're going to be given a new heart. I will take your heart of stone and give you a new heart of flesh. We read of the promises of Christ in Isaiah. We read of the promises of this Messiah in Jeremiah where he will take away the sins of the world, where he will completely remove our sins, where he will restore us back. This wonderful gospel message has been heralded in Scripture, but we need to know that it finds the fullness of its substance in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul goes on and says, 
which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared, powerful word, he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This gospel message, this promise of a new covenant finds all of its substance in the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to learn more about covenant as we work our way through marriage, but C.S. Lewis says, C.S. Lewis calls himself the reluctant convert, (laughs) which is interesting because he's one of the last century's greatest apologists. But C.S. Lewis says, I'm a reluctant convert. He says, I... I looked at all the evidence for Jesus. I looked at all the evidence from history. I looked at all of the, I looked at all of the original manuscripts. I've gone and done all of the research and, and I put my hand up as a reluctant convert. I, I don't really want to be in this position, he says, but I have no choice because the evidence compels me. He says, friends, he writes, that we really are only left with three choices when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. Either Jesus was a liar, either Jesus was a lunatic, or Jesus is Lord. And C.S. Lewis says, because he actually said the things that the Gospels tell us, he says. And he says, you know what? He says he actually did claim to be the Son of God. He did say those things. So he's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he's Lord. And C.S. Lewis says, liars and lunatics don't rise from the dead. When the Pharisees and, and everybody around Christ, when they demanded a sign... Tell us by what authority. Give us a sign so that we know you are who you say you are. He says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale and then came out. What Jesus is saying is the sign of my resurrection is the golden stamp on every word that I have said, the golden stamp on everything that I've claimed, every one of my teachings, this is the golden stamp. I am the Son of God. Lee Strobel and Josh McDowell, two men that went on a journey to disprove the resurrection of Christ, the rest is history. They are now the biggest advocates for the validity of the Christian faith. Jesus has been declared. All of the substance of this gospel is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Our Lord, he says, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith. To who, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith. The, the gospel message brings us to a point of the obedience of our faith. We'll learn more about what faith that is. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Every single person on the planet yearns, whether they know it or not, they yearn for somewhere or someone to belong to. Paul says that each and every one of us have been called to belong to Christ. 
What does it mean to belong? It means that you are the possession of it. It means that somebody takes care of you. And that's, that is the call also of the gospel. And uh, the world is full of many, many children. I've used this analogy before. There's, there's many, 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 many children in the world. And uh, lots of these children, uh, I love all children. I think they're awesome. I think they're great. And we have four children that belong to us. Yes, I'm holding up three fingers because I'm looking to give one away. Where's Reuben? On any given day, I actually love all of my kids. Just some days I don't like that one. I can't find him wherever he is. You can't hear me? That's okay. I'll make him watch the... And the difference between those four children, the difference between those four children and every other child is they belong to me and they are in a relationship with me that no other child actually experiences. No other child is able to experience that. They, they know me on a level that nobody else does. Reuben knows I catch more fish than him. Reuben knows... <laughs> Reuben knows... For for those that aren't married, I have a word of encouragement for you. (laughs) But they enjoy a relationship and those who belong to Jesus Christ, and we have been called to belong to Jesus Christ, those who belong to Jesus Christ enjoy a relationship with him that not everybody else enjoys. Everybody's been called into that relationship. Everybody's been called to belong to Jesus. There is a drawing, there is an urgency, there is... uh, There is a God that beckons us from behind that veil and says the veil has been torn from top to bottom. If you want to know what that veil looked like, it's nothing like these curtains here. That veil was, to give you an idea, it was about as thick as that iPhone is wide. It stood some 30 feet high. It was some 30 odd metres long. And when Jesus Christ yelled out those words, it is finished, that veil was torn from the top to the bottom. There's not a man alive, not even Arnie, could tear that veil from top to bottom. And he he is back. There's another movie. He is back. He was right. Arnie's a prophet. (laughs) He's, He's back. There is no man that could rend that, only God could. And that's the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is there are veils that stand between us and God and they are veils that you can't tear down. They are veils that you can't walk through. They're veils that you don't deserve to, but in Christ you are given all the free access. Jesus says, I have made my way into the most holy place and now you can follow me. Why? We're going to learn more about that next week. Why? Because now you can stand in my righteousness there is a voice there is a drawing and there is a beckoning that beckons us into the presence of God or we are going to experience possibly lifeless religion for the rest of our lives 
If you want to know what Pinocchio has to do with the gospel, then please turn up next week. I say these things because now you'll be talking about it all week. I wonder what Pinocchio has got to do with it. I'm going to go watch Pinocchio. Yeah, we'll go and watch Pinocchio. I, I cannot see any evidence in Scripture. Nowhere can I see in Scripture, in the Old or New Testament, I see no evidence at all where our relationship with God was meant to be wooden, was meant to be stingy, was meant to be this, this kind of formalised, legalised, kind of rule-bound thing. That's, that's not what I find. I find a glorious, liberating relationship. I, I see the smile from the only The only smile that any of us need to worry about is the smile from heaven. You only need to worry about one set of eyes that have got their eyes. Don't worry about all the other sets of eyes. But this gospel, I want to I, I warn everybody in this room because as we make our way from the outer court, as we draw closer to that presence, it will absolutely burn off the sin that is in your life. You, you can't bring your bitterness into the presence of God. You, you can't bring your unforgiveness into the presence of God. You can't bring uh, any of your sin. You can't bring your adultery. You can't bring any of it. And you definitely cannot bring your pride. C.S. Lewis says, the number one sin is pride. All sin stems from that number one sin. It's the pride. We want control. We want our own way. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now that every person inside their hearts and souls right now, Lord God, would hear that trumpet call. Would hear that trumpet piercing our ears, calling us into your presence. And Jesus, we're going to say this a lot over the next coming weeks and months. Thank you so much that you tore those veils down. Thank you so much that you did what we could not do. Thank you so much that you took our sin. Thank you so much that you love us in spite and despite of us. Father, I ask that every person in this place would feel the urgency and would feel the urging and the encouragement to come towards your presence. Lord, lead us on from the outer court. Lead us through that holy place and lead us, I pray, into knowing and experiencing your wonderful and glorious presence. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.